You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. Psalm 146, uh, it, it marks the first of the final five psalms, the, the five together constituting what's known as a Hallel collection. Uh, according to many scholars, one of three such collections found throughout the, the book of Psalms. Hallel meaning a compilation of psalms of praise. The word Hallel, in fact, meaning praise. So we get the word hallelujah, hallelujah, praise, yah. Yahweh, the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. This morning's psalm, Psalm 146, marking the beginning of the last Hallel collection. Each of the final five psalms, if you, if you look, take notice, within the book of Psalms, each of those five beginning and ending with a lively, emphatic praise the Lord. That phrase bookends all of the last five psalms that make up this book of the Bible. This incredible book, the book of Psalms concluding, much like redemptive history will conclude when Christ returns. In joy and praise for those who know and love him, for those who are united to him by faith. That's why we're finishing out with with one of these final five Psalms. Maybe we'll do that each time we camp out in the Psalms as we work our way through the 150. If the book ends that way, maybe it's a good way to end a a sermon series with each time we, we go through a handful of these. Psalm 146, with its shouts of celebration of the faithfulness, the goodness, the justice of God, our sovereign king, seated on the throne of heaven, Lord of creation, Lord of redemption, as we'll see as we jump in. The first lyrics of this psalm, the psalmist declares, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Right, Psalm 146, it begins like a lot of church services with a, a call to worship. The plural form of the imperative praise the Lord, leading many scholars to view Psalm 146 as a congregational hymn intended to be sung in the assembly by God's people. The psalmist in the second part of verse 1 exhorting himself to give the Lord the praise that's due his name. Not unlike what we saw last week with the author of Psalm 42 preaching to his soul. The psalmist here declaring, soul, it's time for a a hallelujah shout or two. It's time to break out the melodies, to break out the harmonies. It's time to extol, to honor, to glorify, to magnify, to rejoice in the Lord, to give thanks to the high king of heaven. Verse two, a declaration that If breath be in our lungs, God is to be praised. In seasons of laughter and dancing, when much of life is champagne and caviar, in seasons of weeping and mourning, when turmoil and sorrow, like like thundering breakers and sea billows roll, as we've seen in certain psalms over the course of the summer months. See very similar language in Psalm 104, verse 33. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live, I will sing praise to my God while I have being. A God worthy of all praise, regardless of circumstance. 
the chief end of man with his breath-filled lungs, you could say, to glorify the one who gives him breath so long as there be breath. He goes on in verse three, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. In the wake of a call to worship, the, the psalmist exhorts God's people to put not their saving trust in people of influence or power, regardless of how much power they hold, regardless of how much influence they possess. In Israel's case, the, the rulers of the surrounding foreign lands with their false gods and pagan religious practices, to whom many may have been tempted to look for security in delivering them from danger. The psalmist exhorting God's people to put not their saving trust in mortal men. Which is a reminder that we all, we all need, don't we? Whether it be the functional savior of a financial advisor, medical practitioner, neither of which are inherently bad, right? Good people who become in our hearts God people. Perhaps most eye-opening, the hope we put in political leaders to act as functional saviors in rescuing us from our own personal hells, whatever they may be. In the words of one writer, sadly, we put more hope in Capitol Hill than Calvary's Hill. The scriptures declare that even the most powerful and influential of people possess their power and influence because of God. Sovereign, this God is, over political leaders and world rulers. We talked about this a few weeks ago. You have passages like Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, where Daniel said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Two chapters later, Daniel 4, 17, The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Or Proverbs 21, 1, the king's heart, it's a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it, God does, wherever he will. Even the most powerful and influential of people possess their power and influence because of God. Sovereign over political leaders, world rulers, including the wicked ones like Nebuchadnezzar, Nero, Hitler, you name it. Sovereign too, this God is, over life and death. The life of Every person to whom uh, we might be tempted to turn in saving trust in the hands of the only sovereign, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. As James puts it, James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. It's why David could say that every one of his days was written in God's holy book before one of them had come to pass. God is sovereign in our living and God is sovereign in our dying. Our lives ultimately in his hands, even those with greatest power and influence. Even they to the earth, verse 4, must return. That language and imagery alluding to the, the earliest chapters of the Bible. 
framing up this story of redemption, the creation of man, Genesis chapter two, verse seven. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. The forming of man of dust from the ground, breathing into man's nostrils the breath of life. That language and imagery not only found in the story of creation, but too, as many of you know, in God's executing of judgment in the wake of man's fall. That very next chapter, Genesis 3. By the sweat of your face, the Lord says, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Sin's curse of death in great irony, described as man being swallowed up by the very ground over which he was meant to exercise dominion. Captured incredibly poetically in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 5 through 7. The mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. The author of Ecclesiastes is offering up a, a list of word pictures describing death, a, a broken cistern no, no longer able to draw water, a lamp no, no longer able to produce a glow, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Coming back to Psalm 146, so it is with even those of greatest power and influence. Verse four, here today, gone tomorrow. As we talked about when we studied Daniel several years back, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but the kingdom of God shall reign forever. To the ground, every image bearer must return their, their promises to those having trusted in them, perishing with them. Right, the psalmist presenting us with, with the sobering question, to whom or what shall we turn in highest hope and greatest trust? He goes on in verse five. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. This, the... The final beatitude, you might say, or blessed is statement in the book of Psalms, a fitting bookend to Psalm chapter one, which we looked at a few weeks back. The blessing of God is for those who look to him for help, whose hope is in the Lord. These lyrics flying in the face of the great Benjamin Franklin who popularized the statement, God helps those who help themselves. Psalm 146, an acknowledgement that man cannot do it on his own bringing us face to face with the question of whether or not we have the Christian maturity to admit that we need help, that we're poor in spirit. We need the help of the one who came not from the dust, but who created the dust, verse six, who in fact created all things, the psalmist says, heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them. It's an all-encompassing description of creation. Nothing in, in all of creation outside of God's dominion. These lyrics, not unlike those of Psalm 121, where the psalmist says, I, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. 
The Palestinian hills, you may remember this if you were around for our study of the Psalms of Ascent. Those hills were a reminder of the the dangers of the journey to Jerusalem. Dangers not just circumstantial, but spiritual. Those, Those hills too, pedestals on which the altars of pagan gods were erected to be worshipped in exchange for safe passage, whether it be the, the moon god, the, the sun god, or, or the many other gods promising protection. From where does my help come? I think we could safely say that there are just as many altars sitting atop just as many hills today as there were in the days of the, the composition of this incredible hymn book of the Old Testament. Functional saviors promising us safe passage. If only we'll bow down and worship and make the appropriate sacrifices with our lives. The lyrics of Psalm 121, like those of Psalm 146, making the the connection between our need for divine help and God's creative power. Having brought forth this God, the fullness of creation by virtue of his authoritative decree. It's what theologians and scholars refer to as creation ex nihilo. Creation out of nothing. Creation without the use of pre-existing material. Heaven and earth and sea and, and all that is in them. He who shaped his unformed creation into a glorious stage. We're standing on it right now. The stage on which man would dwell with God. The stage on which man would rebel against God. The stage on which all of the Old Testament shadows that point to Jesus would be established. The stage on which Jesus would take on human flesh to die in the place of sinners like you and me. The stage on which the church would be established and the stage to which Jesus will return and wipe away sin and sadness forever. God did that. From where does our help come? Our help comes from the Lord, the creator of all things, bound not by creation, rather sovereign over creation. A God of boundless power, committed to wielding his power and keeping his people on our dangerous, perilous journey to glory. Worthy of our hope, worthy of our trust. In the words of one writer, he has the power to affect his will, and the heart to enact it in human affairs. This God of creation, the God of Jacob, verse five, the covenant Lord of his chosen people, Yahweh, the name by which God revealed himself to Moses in promising to lead his Exodus people safely to the land of Canaan, the name emphasizing God's covenant faithfulness, his commitment to fighting for his people, This creator God, having brought about the universe by virtue of his authoritative decree, he spoke and it said, you got it, creation did. This God, verse six, keeps faith forever. Which can also be translated, he who remains faithful forever. Forever faithful because he is eternal. His plans and promises, unlike those of man who returns to the dust from which he was formed, Again, kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but the kingdom of God shall reign forever. That's why it would make sense that Moses in his song of deliverance, Exodus 15, would close that song with the words, the Lord will reign forever and ever. End of song. 
this eternal God, forever faithful to his creation, forever faithful to his redeemed. What does that look like? The, the psalmist do, doesn't leave us in, in this sort of ethereal place, but he answers the question. He goes on to say in verses seven through nine, this God executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord, he sets the prisoners free. He opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lift up, lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The psalmist here proclaiming the many ways that the maker of heaven and earth, all of creation, graciously and mercifully exercises his power. The work of the creator in the history of Israel's redemption. The name Yahweh declared five times in these verses, emphasizing God's covenant faithfulness to his people. A God who exercises or executes justice for the oppressed, who takes up the cause of those defrauded, mistreated, wronged. A God who provides food for the hungry, sets the captives free, as he did with Israel in the Exodus, freeing his people from Egyptian enslavement, providing manna for them in the wilderness. A God who opens the eyes of the blind, both physically and spiritually. That language and imagery too, alluding to the days of Moses, when God freed those in darkness that they might see light again. A God who lifts up those who are bowed down, those burdened and heavy laden. Again, the lament psalms. A God who watches over the sojourner, the outsider, and upholds the widow and the orphan, those otherwise without provision and protection in this broken world. It's not to say the Lord always does these things things with no expressions of hunger or injustice among his people. We know that's not true. Rather, it's to say that he has done these things again and again and again, and therefore is worthy of our trust. The psalmist presenting us with a picture that stands in upside down contrast with the princes of this world. Verse three, a God who loves the righteous, verse eight, who to use the language of Psalm one going back a few weeks, who intimately knows the way of the righteous. He has intimate knowledge of his people, experiential, relational knowledge. The righteous, not some altogether different category, by the way, from the poor, the oppressed, and the bowed down in verses seven through nine, as oftentimes that's the, the condition and experience of God's people in part simply for choosing the path of righteousness. A God who brings the way of the Wicked to ruin, verse 9, who, again, to use the language of Psalm 1, cuts off the wicked from the congregation of the righteous, promising blessing for those who respond in obedience to and trust in him, those who delight in him and hope in him, promising judgment for those who choose the path of wickedness and rebellion. As I said back when we looked at Psalm 1 a couple weeks ago, Two roads diverging in a yellow wood. The psalmist continues, verse 10. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Psalm 146, ending where it began with a call to worship, declaring the forever reign of God. 
His reign and eternal reign, worthy to be praised. Again, so long as breath be in our lungs. The book of Psalms itself, Psalm 150, verse 6, the very last verse, closing with lyrics of similar sentiment. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Which leads me to a question that I and others who have preached have sought to answer with each of the Psalms that we've explored these past few months. Namely, how does this Psalm point to Jesus? I mean, Jesus himself on the road to Emmaus said, in the law, the prophets and the writings, look for me, they speak of me. How? Well, we could surely, as we have in other Psalms, spend time with the creator language of Psalm 146. After all, Jesus is the Father's agent in the work of creation. Colossians 1.16, for by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, including those who will return to dust from which they came. All things were created through him and for him. That is Jesus. The Father's agent in the work of creation, heaven and earth and sea, verse 6, and all that is in them. More explicitly, Psalm 146, a song of praise that finds its ultimate fulfillment in the ministry of Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of, and maybe you recall this when we worked our way through the book of Luke, Jesus is reading aloud from the scroll of Isaiah in Luke chapter 4 in the early days of his ministry in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth where we're told that he enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is reading from the scroll of Isaiah, followed by the shortest recorded sermon in all of scripture, Luke chapter four. Jesus declared, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let's pray. Maybe the shortest sermon recorded in all of Scripture because that one single statement, today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, is filled with awe-inspiring wonder. Jesus declaring himself in that moment to be the very fulfillment of the Isaiah scroll with its language and imagery not at all unlike the language and imagery of Psalm 146. The Lord's anointed, having come to preach good news to the poor, to the physically and spiritually destitute and needy. The Lord's anointed, having come to proclaim liberty to the captives, to those oppressed, to set imprisoned spirits free. Free from bondage to money, as we see in the story of Zacchaeus. Free from bondage to Satan, as we see in the healing of the Gerasene demoniac. The Lord's anointed, having come to give sight to the blind which of course we see in the physical sense in the healing of the blind beggar on the road to Jericho. Two, in the spiritual sense, in the opening of the eyes of once blinded sinners, which Jesus does over and over and over again. He's still doing it. That we might see in his wonderful face the light of the knowledge of God's glory. 2 Corinthians 4. The Lord's anointed having come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, hearkening back to the the year of Jubilee from Leviticus 25. 
the Jubilee, a year when slaves were set free from their servitude, a year when those in debt were released from their burdensome obligations. Jesus having come to bring about the greatest of Jubilees, setting sinners free from our enslaving servitude to sin, bearing the wages of our sin that we might be freed from that burdensome debt and curse. All of these things fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He who executes God's justice. He who feeds the hungry and sets the captives free. He who opens the eyes of the blind and cares for the outcast. He who lifts up the burdened and heavy laden. Says, come to me, I'll give you rest. Jesus declaring himself to be the fulfillment of these mighty works, having performed these saving acts in the days of his public ministry. Signs that he was bringing God's kingdom into this broken world, having uh, the, the inauguration of the kingdom of God and the first coming of Christ. Psalm 146, it's, it's an exhortation to set our hope on Jesus, to put our trust in Jesus. Not in worldly powers and authorities, kings and kingdoms, which have and will rise and fall. Nothing new under the sun. This psalm inviting us, verse 3, to praise the Son of Man in whom there is salvation. Amen? To praise the, the one true eternal King, verse 10, the Lord who shall reign forever. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 says it this way, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Jesus, eternal king of kings, eternal Lord of lords who will come again to consummate God's kingdom setting all things right when he returns. No more blind and imprisoned, no more impoverished and oppressed. No more burdened and heavy laden. No more wickedness and evil. That is for those who trust in him for salvation. And bow before him in glad submission as heaven's king. As Revelation 21 verses 3 through 5 so famously put it. I heard a loud voice John says, from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. as we eagerly and longingly wait for that greatest of happily ever afters. For one, we get to be something of the embodiment of Jesus as we continue to minister as Jesus did in our day to those around us, to proclaim the, the good news of Christ and to show them the love of Christ. Two, Psalm 146 inviting us perhaps more explicitly, exhorting us even to set our hope on Jesus, to put our trust in Jesus. If breath be in our lungs, to praise Jesus. In seasons of laughter and dancing, in seasons of weeping and mourning, no matter our circumstance, he's still Lord and God. 
and is worthy of our trust, worthy of our hope, worthy of our song. Robert Grant, in the old hymn, O Worship the King, All Glorious Above, he writes, Frail children of dust and feeble as frail, in thee do we trust, nor find thee to fail. Thy mercies, how tender, how firm to the end, our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. As the book of Psalms brings itself to a close, with these words, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. We all have breath, right? We're all living right now. I think it's time for us to do some singing. To come before the Lord, wherever we may be, whatever we may be bringing into this place. Again, perhaps all is going swimmingly right now. And there's an alignment with a hymn of praise like this to say, yes and amen, let's go, let's sing. Perhaps it's a lament that some of us bring into this place this morning and the cry of our hearts need be in these moments to come. I'm struggling, I'm under the breakers and the waves and yet you're still worthy of my trust and my hope, Lord. And so with tears coming down, streaming down, I too will sing. Have an opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper as well. Between now and the, the end of the service, over the next few songs, you're welcome to do that whenever you're ready to do so. If you're not a Christian, we'd encourage you not to partake of the bread and the cup. Rather, that your next step would be one of repentance and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, a bowing before him in glad submission, declaring, you are heaven's king. And if you are a Christian, before you receive of those elements, which there are tables on either side of the stage, there's a gluten-free table in the back corner there. Before you receive of, of the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, before you dip it in the cup representing his shed blood, I just encourage you to take verse 3 of Psalm 146 and to declare to Jesus before you receive those elements, you are the son of man in whom there is salvation. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.